Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. This is Johanna Mellis uh, with you today. I am uh, recording on my own today, um, but I am just so thrilled to have been able to speak with two of our absolute favorite, favorite people um, when it comes to critically analyzing sport, especially critically calling in the International Olympic Committee and just international sport organizations in general. And those people are uh, Jules Boykoff and Dave Zirin. And like I said, just such a pleasure to speak with them. And the reason why I interviewed them was to talk about their article that they published with Jacobin, which we will link in the show notes, that's titled, Israel and Russia Have No Place in the 2024 Paris Olympics. And um, I really encourage listeners, if they have not already, to read the article, of course, in addition to listening to the episode, because I think they do such a fantastic job at doing a a comparative analysis in a way that's really productive. Um, I didn't mention this in the episodes, but if you follow me on Twitter, (laughs) you know how much I care about or how much I think it is really crucial to do historical comparisons. Um, There are people, especially when it comes to the topics of like genocide and fascism, there are a lot of people in my field and many other fields who think that comparisons are not the comparison shouldn't be done, for example, about the Holocaust. Not This is not about the Holocaust, but that just, just using it as an example that the Holocaust should not be compared. Um, and there's a lot of pushback from me and, and colleagues and many other people that when it comes to colonialism, genocide, authoritarianism, violence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that we absolutely must do historical comparisons. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I think this one is so compelling, because on the one hand, much of the Western world agrees that Russia and Russian athletes should be a penalized or banned and or banned from, from the Olympic Games altogether. Um, but then a lot of these same people have been silent when it comes to um, athletes that would compete for Israel. So that's what I think their article does so well is it brings a lot of nuance to the table. And it also talks about the element of like the, the role of the U.S., and also addresses the question that a lot of people do bring up is that, well, okay, if we're going to call for Russian, if, uh, if we're going to call for athletes from Russia and from Israel to be banned, um, why shouldn't um, the U.S. and American athletes be banned? And I think in the piece, they do a really good job of explaining it. Um, they got some feedback from the article, and Dave in particular offers um, kind of a more thorough answer to that question. Um, but at the end of the day, one of the main thrusts of their piece is that violence and warfare and genocide are happening right now. And so therefore, this is something that needs to be done ASAP. That's all that I have for you today. Please enjoy the show and uh, let us know what you think. We're very curious about what you think about these episodes. And we're, we're glad to be back recording. And, and also, of course, let us know if you're using them in your classrooms, if you're using them for your scholarship. I will also plug, I'm personally going out for tenure in the fall. So I will be putting out on social media calls that like, if you use any of this work, and any of your teaching, research, or public scholarship to please let me know. So I will end on that note. Please enjoy the show. everyone and welcome to another episode of the end of sport this is johanna mellis and i am really thrilled to be speaking with two fabulous repeat guests today i suspect that most listeners are aware of and follow them both and if you don't you need to be doing because what are you doing if you're not uh, kind of reading and listening everything that they're doing uh, so today we have Jules Boykoff. Um, Jules is professor and chair of politics and government at Pacific University, and he's one of, truly one of the preeminent public scholars of the Olympic Games. He's author of the forthcoming critical primer on the Olympic Games that we all should get a copy of, titled "Who Are the Olympics For?" as well as um, another book called The 1936 Berlin Olympics, Race, Power, and Sports Washing. He's also author of Power Games and many others. We're also lucky to have Dave Zirin, who, as many of you probably know, is sports editor at The Nation. He's host of the Edge of Sports podcast and author of an incredible number of books on the politics of sport, including 2021's The Kaepernick Effect, 
2019's co-authored Things That Make White People Uncomfortable with Michael Bennett and so many more. And I really just want to thank you both for taking time out of your busy schedules to speak with us and welcome back to the end of sport. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. So um, I'm really happy to talk to you both about this fantastic article that we will uh, that we will link in the show notes that you co-wrote for Jacobin about the urgency surrounding the IOC's approach to Russia and Israel. It's titled "Israel and Russia Have No Place in the 2024 Paris Olympic Games." And you two have written many, many pieces together, um, critically analyzing the IOC's engagement and deeply harmful practices, including but not limited to its relationship with authoritarianism and fascism specifically. So I was wondering what motivated you two to write this piece and why do it now? Jules, do you want to go right ahead or I can Go for it, Dave. Well, I think we were... It, this this piece took on a couple of different lives. Um, first, we were writing very specifically about what was happening with Russia and all the twists and turns with, you know, will they allow Russian athletes given the invasion of Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Uh, will they uh, permit athletes who are connected to the Russian military? Uh, will there be a flag? Will there be an anthem? Like all of these you know, s- small things that the IOC, small bore things the IOC was going to do but one of the things it was doing was openly and vocally at one point chastising Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, any voices on that, certainly given the carnage were from my perspective, welcome. But then of course you have, uh, so that was the article, but then, you know, the political reality of what Israel has been doing to Gaza over the last several months was, was too much to ignore. I mean, to me, Almost every piece I've written since October 7th has touched on this in some way, shape, or form. Because, it, it, first of all, it's hard to just live um, as, as a human being while you know a genocide is unfolding right in front of your eyes on social media every single day. And that feeling of powerlessness to stop it. But second of all, as a journalist, you know, there's a responsibility to speaking about this profound injustice. So Jules and I spoke about like, well, why don't we take this article that we did, which, uh, you know, Jules did a lot of the work on and which I thought was excellent and combine it to make it about the double standard of why the IOC will say something about Ukraine, but not say something about Israel, Palestine, and to make the case that, you know, both are these incredibly pressing, pressing issues where all organizations, you know, all of civil society needs to be speaking out right now. And we are going to connect that and ask that question about the hypocrisy, one versus the other. And it's just one last point. Can I make just one last point? Because one of the feedbacks we've gotten on the article is like, well, why not ban the United States, who's funding the war, of course, on Mm -hmm. Gaza, and who's been involved Mm -hmm. in a million you know, extracurricular activities throughout the world. And to that, I say, yeah, I get that. And that should probably be the subject of its own article. But to me, it was the IOC pressing Russia about Ukraine that opens the door to speak about Gaza and Israel. So to focus on that as a winnable demand of the movement of ceasefire activists and athlete activists to be able to say no Israel in the Olympics. Yeah. just to add to that, um, you know, you asked what motivated us to write this piece. And in addition to everything that Dave just laid out for you with the background, one thing that was really striking to both of us was how the International Olympic Committee became quite political when it wanted to be, when it came to Russia and the invasion of Ukraine. Now, if we think back to when that happened, of course, it first happened way back in 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea between the Olympics and Paralympics that it was hosting in Sochi. But setting that aside, the invasion of Ukraine happened between the Olympics and Paralympics in 2022 that were happening in Beijing. And of course, the International Olympic Committee did not take very kindly to this. And they actually were pretty outspoken in political ways, which was striking to us because for a long time, the International Olympic Committee has lived under the mythical fiction that the Olympics are not political. And to see them take a political stand was actually kind of refreshing in some ways. But what was interesting, as Dave pointed out, is there's this striking 
unconscionable in a lot of ways double standard when it came to Israel in the sense that it was willing to criticize Russia, but it wasn't willing to apply the exact same standards that it was applying to Russia to another country that had invaded another. Now, if we break down the specifics of it for those who really follow this stuff in detail, the International Olympic Committee argued when it came to Russia, they'd done two things that were kind of beyond the pale, and that's why they deserve to be not only critiqued, but penalized. And one of those was to break the Olympic truce, which a long time ago, Dave and I wrote about, it's this thing uh, that gets passed every two years by the United Nations. It's non-binding. We said a long time ago that it's equivalent to buying a unicorn with a bucket of Bitcoin. It has like zero purchase. But all of a sudden, the IOC says, Mm -hmm. you know what? We want to use this thing, and we're going to use it against Russia. So that was one. The other thing that they said was that Russia had taken over some of the athletic fields of the Ukraine, named particular areas in their press release. So we said, okay, if those are the two standards, one obviously doesn't apply right now because we're not in an Olympic moment, but the other one definitely does. I mean, the, the Israeli forces had taken over a very famous soccer field and basically turned it into an internment camp. Most of Gaza, including its sports grounds, ha- had been rubbled and people had been forced to flee these areas. And so that piece very much did apply. So in a sense, we were kind of just saying, look, here's our our good faith ask of you is to, here's your standards from before. Should you be able to apply them now? And the other thing that I would just add is that even though the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, has long said that they're not political, they have at times in its history gotten quite political when the time demanded it. So for instance, they banned South Africa for around 30 years because a lot of countries stood up and said, we're going to boycott these Olympics in the, in the 1960s if you don't ban South Africa. So there's actually historical precedent for the International Olympic Committee to take principled action. And, you know, in a world that's sort of writhing with like this hyperpolarization where people aren't listening to each other, it would have been really interesting for the International Olympic Committee to actually take a principled stand. After all, recently, they've kind of They've modulated a little bit their stance about not being political, and they've said they're neutral, which really comes to mind this a book that I've been reading recently called Ordinary Notes by Christina Sharp, and she's got this line where mm-hmm. she says, any so-called neutral position is a position of power that refuses to recognize itself as such. And that seemed to mm-hmm. apply perfectly to the International Olympic Committee. It claims neutrality, but it's in a position of power that refuses to recognize itself. And so we said, why cede that power that you have? You know, the IOC is a powerful organization. Why not actually act with principle? And that's kind of what we demanded they do in this piece. Excellent. Thank you. So such rich answers, both of you. And I was wondering, I mean, we could go kind of um, kind of section by section the article, but I mean, and Dave, you gestured to this a little bit when you talked about kind of the response to like, well, why not demand that the U.S. be banned, for example? But I wanted to get to like what you talk about at the end, because I think it ends on such a strong note and you really kind of get the the answer to the so what question. And so when I, I guess, what do you think could be the possible like effect if the IOC like sort of why do this now? Like, what, what, what could be the possible outcome if they were to ban Israel? Like, what's sort of at stake here? This might seem obvious, but I think it's worth teasing out for people that may not be familiar with this. Well, it's a couple of things. First of all, terrific question. Uh, and second of all, the expectation that they'll do it is not there. True, and true. we have to also speak honestly about why it does. I mean, we have to connect the dots, even though mm-hmm. as someone like myself who's strongly a believer in Ukrainian liberation in the face of Russian mm-hmm. aggression. Um, we do have to recognize that the, one of the reasons why the IOC, tough on Russia, silent on mm-hmm. Israel, is because of Western, particularly U.S. foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, Joe Biden, basically. Mm-hmm. And so because of the degree to which the United States has that influence in the IOC, even if there's this fiction that they are somehow marginalized by countries um, who aren't part of Western dominance throughout the world. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, what a fiction that is. So we have to recognize that. The second thing is when you, we need to, Israel is a country that right now needs to be isolated in order for it to stop what I would describe as a looming genocide in Gaza. This is an all hands on decks moment. I mean, we're talking about well over a million people displaced. We're talking about upwards of 30,000 deaths of civilians. We're talking about an unconscionable number of those deaths 
being children. We're talking about not even knowing actual death counts um, because it's it's widely thought by the Israeli government that even the counts that are out there are undercounted because we don't know what's underneath so much of the rubble. So what we're looking at is a flagrant violation of every possible UN dictate about creating buffer zones, about ethnic cleansing, about forcibly moving populations. And so just the idea that you could just go along with something that is supposed to be about the community of nations at a moment where Israel is acting in such a way that it should be classified as a pariah nation, um, to me, is something that, that has to be front-loaded. And I, 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 I always feel that the obligation to say, as I say this someone, as someone who is a proudly Jewish person, and one of the things why I feel the importance of being outspoken about this is that it turns my stomach that you have a government in the world, and frankly, two governments, if you listen to the rhetoric of the United States, that says that this needs to be supported in my name and in the name of my family. You know, that puts a burden on us as Jews who disagree with this carnage, who disagree with the looming genocide at play, to have something to say. And so in my, so I think, frankly, if I, no matter what corner of the world I worked in, I would try to figure out something to say. Like if I was a teacher, I would say, how does, how can my union pass a ceasefire resolution? And, but I'm a sports writer. So where's my place in this? It's to look at these kinds of international festivals, so rife as Jules has written, you know, with hypocrisy, uh, and, and point out that hypocrisy and also make the call and stand with the athletes who are already doing this and call for um, the banning of Israel from the Olympic Games. And we can put conditions on it for a ceasefire, and we can have broader discussions about, well, it's an apartheid country, should it even be in the Olympic Games at all, in the tradition of keeping South Africa and Rhodesia out of the Games. But there's an immediacy to this moment right now. The sirens are going off. And everybody needs to be doing their part to try to save lives. Yeah, that's really powerfully put, Dave. And I would also put it to the International Olympic Committee, you know, if you're not going to stand up now against these obvious injustices that the entire world can see, when are you going to actually do it? I mean, you have this mm-hmm. Olympic charter that is chock full of wonderful principles and ideas and ideals. Well, you know, it should mean something. And now is a key moment for the International Olympic Committee to actually stand up and make it mean something. Let's be clear, you know, Russia is not actually going to have all its athletes banned from the Paris Olympics coming up this summer. The International Olympic Committee did ban the Russian Olympic Committee from attending. This puts a little bit of a ding in the money that the Russian Olympic Committee will receive. So there's been a couple small penalties. Mm -hmm. But what the International Olympic Committee did not do is put a blanket ban on Russian athletes. They put some particular strictures on athletes. There won't be team sports appearing. But essentially, the International Olympic Committee kicked the responsibility to these international sports federations, what some people call IFs, Mm -hmm. and said, okay, you all make the rules. Now, for me, I think that was a little bit pusillanimous. I think that was a little bit weak need. If you're a leader, stand Mm -hmm. up and lead in this moment. Don't just kind of kick the can to these other groups. But these groups then have created sort of a patchwork of rules that will allow some Russian athletes to participate, so long as they weren't actively involved in the war on Ukraine, uh, aren't going out there and wearing Z's on their shirts, denoting support for the war against Ukraine. So you're going to see athletes in Russia, they're going to be participating under neutrality. So they'll be neutral athletes. And if it's happening to Russia, I guess the question is, well, why isn't it happening to Israel when they're doing a lot of the exact same things that are happening that have led to the exclusion of athletes from Russia? And so you know, you bring up the question about, about U.S. And, and imperial violence, and, and Dave is exactly right that that is a major reason why you're not seeing the International Olympic Committee move strong against Israel or even make a statement against what's happening, but uh, what's being carried out by Israel and Gaza and also the West Bank, by the way. Um, the, the U.S. has a lot of power in the system, as does Russia. And so the International Olympic Committee is confronted by two of its Olympic big dogs, if you will. Mm-hmm. who are misbehaving, and they're trying to dance around it, calling themselves neutral, trying to avoid politics. But 
this moment is just too rich with politics. And I think it's going to come to a head the closer we get to Paris. And so we were really trying to open up this conversation. I mean, there's a lot of time still where things could happen. The Olympics don't start in Paris until July. And so we were just trying to open up a wider conversation for us all to have about this and hopefully make some change. Absolutely. And two things. One is fortunately we're not alone. Uh, there are athletes, certainly folk, Palestinian athletes, but there are athletes now all over the world mm-hmm. calling for this. So one of the things that I'm trying to do right now, and I know Jules and I will be doing in the near future, is trying to amplify those voices as well mm-hmm. to say, hey, it's not just some journalists who are um, sympathetic to st- a ceasefire. I mean, this is something the athletes are saying, like, why are we doing this with a country that's enacting uh, this kind of uh, horrific policy. And I would also add that France right now, an absolute hotbed around these issues. Mm-hmm. And this is not a case where, like I had friends who tried to protest in China during the Beijing Olympics of 2008, and they were basically thrown in the back of a truck after like 30 mm-hmm. seconds of unfurling mm-hmm. a banner. I mean, it was just police everywhere boom, you're gone. Next thing you know, you've got a blindfold on and you're being led to the airport to be sent back home. Of course, they didn't know they were being led to an airport. How terrifying must that have been? Yeah. Um, but, but, this, but this is Paris, you know, and definitely there will be a crackdown because as Jules and I have been, have been written for years, um, it's, you know, the Olympic, the IOC likes to argue that we need to have the Olympics in authoritarian countries because our presence mm-hmm. makes them less authoritarian. When actually the opposite is true is like when they have them in bourgeois democracies, those bourgeois democracies become more authoritarian because of the presence of the Olympics. So I'm not saying it's going to be, you know, easy peasy lemon squeezy, but I am saying that there, if this, if we have not, don't have a ceasefire, like it's going to be, and if Israel is represented, I mean, frankly, even if Israel's not represented, um, there is going to be a firestorm of protest, I think, and people and activists using the platform of the Olympics to have themselves heard. Definitely. You know, we're Absolutely. already seeing that. Oh, sorry, Johanna, go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. Please well, go I'm ahead. just going to add to what Dave was saying real quick. And I think mm-hmm. the closer that we get to Paris as these qualifying events go on, you're going to see more and more athletes taking a stand. And, and we just saw mm-hmm. uh, just about a week ago where four marathoners who are participating at the U.S. Olympic trial, they organized a ceasefire protest where the runners, and I want to say their names, actually, Jesse Joseph, Aiden Reed, Julian Henninger, and Nadir Youssef, when they crossed the finish line, they were waving Palestinian flags in solidarity. A special shout out, I should say, because I'm in Portland, Oregon, to Jesse Joseph, who I literally have seen running down my street and stopped and talked to him while he was while he was training. So these folks organized a protest. And I think we're going to see more of this the closer we get. Of course, it depends on world events and the way everything transpires, but I don't have anything that I've seen on the news that makes me think that things are going to change very quickly. So, you know, these athletes are really cutting against the grain. If you've lived in this country, in the United States for very long, you know that a thick shroud of propaganda covers this issue. And it's often very difficult to puncture through, but you're going to see athletes trying and, and we're going to be there to try to figure out what they're doing and, and when appropriate, try to amplify their voices. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the runners because I, it's interesting, of course, the fact that it happened, the Olympic trials were in Orlando, right? Where like DeSantis has been trying to like ban pro-Palestinian groups at university campuses, right? It's like very famously, incredibly pro-Israel. Um, and then and then I think the, the France element's also interesting because if it were being held in a place like Germany, it would be vastly different because Germany is so, so pro-Israel, not unlike the U.S., although for some slightly different reasons, right? So I think even the fact that um, the, the Olympics in summer are going to be in Paris is also interesting. Agreed. It creates opportunities. Um, Macron has tried to outlaw protests as well mm. uh, in Paris, and the fact okay. that he's failed miserably and the fact that so many Paris politi- uh, French politicians um, are calling for a ceasefire, are attempting to apply pressure. All of that does is create openings mm-hmm. for activists. I mean, we hope they see, they seize them. Certainly I'm, I'm excited to cover whatever they try to do because I think that process of amplification 
is so critical. Like what Jules talking about the marathon runners, you know, mm-hmm. where was the media coverage of that? I mean, right. I mean, I'm, I'm interviewing, uh, Jesse this Friday actually, awesome. uh, for the real news network. Um, but you know, th- this, but <laughs> this should be on ESPN mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and it won't be. Um, partly because they've weeded out some of the most courageous journalists that they've had there mm-hmm. and, and the television shows that actually would cover issues like this. Mm-hmm. Granted, they would have, I mean, cause I, I, when there used to be a show called outside the lines, I remember I was on debating the, uh, the Betar, uh, soccer team, which is so virulently anti-Arab and Muslim. I believe they're called Betar Jerusalem. Um, and we, we, we would like debate that on outside the lines and mm-hmm. granted, I don't know why we would ever debate whether Arab and Muslim people deserve to be part of the human family or deserve mm-hmm. to be degraded. You know, that part is really offensive, but at least mm-hmm. it gave oxygen to the fact that these, this group exists and that there was a movement against it and all the rest of it. Uh, the, the absolute, uh, silence and silencing of athletes demands, I think a media movement to make sure that these voices are heard. You know, one other thing, you know, Dave and I for a long time have been writing about how history matters, you know, historical context Mm -hmm. very much matters if you want to understand Mm -hmm. our present moment. And Johanna, when you pointed out that like certain places, Germany, France, elsewhere, you know, have these particular historical contexts, I have a lot of people I know in Germany who follow sports politics, Mm -hmm. who are very critical of the International Mm -hmm. Olympic Committee and they're very disturbed by the kind of things that, that we're talking about today, actually. And they've pushed back on, on the essay, for example, that Dave and I wrote for Jacobin. And their critique mm-hmm. is that we always need to say, they argue, that what happened on October 7th with Hamas was an atrocity and it was terrible. And, and, and I, mm-hmm. I want to just say, you know, th- that's obvious to me. I mean, uh, no one condones mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. kind of activity. But I, I also want to just say it out loud for those people in Germany who might be listening that they very much need to hear that because I don't want to shut down the conversation just because I don't acknowledge that that was a horrible incident. It was, of course, part of a longer right. spiral of violence that we've been seeing that has lasted decades. And I think if you want to talk about October 7th in a serious way, you need to also talk about that spiral of violence. But I do want to just kind of put that on the table. I don't want to alienate people that might otherwise be willing to have this conversation. And the other thing I would say is mm-hmm. I had the good fortune of being in Paris doing some field work for a couple of weeks back in December. And it was mm-hmm. striking to me that even in December, many months before the Olympics, there were signs, literal signs on the walls all around Paris that were protesting the Olympics in different ways. Signs that were by left-wing organizations that are using the Olympics to try to get a better deal for migrants. Signs by straight-up No Olympics Anywhere anti-Olympics activists, as well as signs and protests by far-right activists in France, like to the right of Le Pen, so far right that Le Pen, you know, doesn't even want to have them as part of their group. And I attended one of their protests. And they feel like the Olympics are an example of totalitarianism because of the QR codes that are going to be required. These are kind of an anti-vaxxer crowd that doesn't mm-hmm. want any anything like a QR code mm-hmm. in their neighborhood. And so all I'm saying to when I mention that is this summer, I think, is going to be a lot more raucous than a lot of people realize at this stage. Because like Dave was mentioning, France has a strong culture of protest and it spans the entire political spectrum. And that's the thing about the Olympics. They can be something that the entire political spectrum enjoys. But it's also one of those things that anyone on the political spectrum, no matter where you are, might have a disagreement with, whether it's fiscal conservatives who are upset about the use of public money or leftists who are concerned about things like we've been talking about today in regards to inclusion of athletes, in regards to gentrification and displacement of working class populations and all that kind of stuff. So I think we have a pretty interesting experience coming our way this summer. And by the way, Dave and I will be there covering that Olympic. Mm. We'll have to check back with you then. Yeah. Um, may, may I, Johanna? Just, just sure. Yes, quickly. please. Uh, just, just a, cu- a couple of things to to respond to Jules. I, while I as well want to acknowledge the horrors of October seventh, I know working in close concert with people trying to fight for a ceasefire, the frustration that we talk about October seventh without talking about October sixth, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. as if October seventh was the start of something when all it was really a start Mm -hmm. of was the most fevered dreams of the hard right of Israel being Mm -hmm. able to make Mm -hmm. those dreams a reality. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's, and that's the nightmare in which we live. Also the 
irony of the German position on this, you know, which, right. which everybody yeah. roots in Holocaust guilt and therefore right. they must support the state of Israel. The irony that it was the German state in the 1930s and 40s that liquidated, mm-hmm. a, mm-hmm. exterminated a generation of Jews who were not Zionists, but who fought anti-Semitism through class struggle, through right. multi-religious struggle, through unions, through social organizations, through schools. You know, they destroyed that. And Zionism is what we've been left with as the main political current in our religion, which they are then supporting. And I, I, it bothers me that that irony is not lost on them, that the only reason they are kowtowing to Israel is that they killed all the people who would be giving an alternative opinion about how you actually fight anti-Semitism. Hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And I guess just one thing I'd say um, to listeners, there's a really great anthropologist by the name of Damien Partridge who wrote this book that I teach in my nationalism class. And he basically talks about how like German Holocaust education is part of like German national identity is very, um, it's very much about like atoning, quote unquote, atoning for Germany's sins. And it's very Zionist, very anti-Arab, anti-Turkish, anti-Muslim. So I really like encourage like, I'll link in the show notes, I'll encourage people to, to read it. It's open access, I think, or at least I've been able to download it without any kind of um, academic affiliation. Because I think it really, because I think you're absolutely right in that, like, we we would hope for sort of an expansive understanding of, like, what does genocide mean and kind of what does white supremacist violence mean? You know, what do, the, what do these things actually mean in the way that Germany has approached it is very exclusionary. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, I just wanted to kind of note that because his work is really excellent. Mm-hmm. So the one thing that Germany does right, and I want to say one thing, I'm sure they do more than one thing, right? But the thing <laughs> they do that's very right that uh, that I, that I, I do call back to a lot is that there were a lot of Nazi sculptures, statues, and you know they tore them down and melted them, mm-hmm. and that in the United States we're still wrestling over right. you know the leaders of Jim Crow having a prominent place in our public square the leaders of secession, the leaders of you know, the, the South and during the Civil War. I mean, that, that's still viewed as somehow acceptable to have them in our public square. It's like Germany got that part right and the United States continues to get that wrong. Well, fun, uh, not so fun fact. Um, this is getting off the topic of article, but the Florida Senate literally just passed a bill yesterday preventing cities from removing confederate monuments right so like yeah absolutely this is like it's like totally grounded in this like white nationalist movement it's yeah which is like taking over the u.s um so we've kind of we've been like kind of talking about this but i was i was wondering if we could um talk a little bit more about like what role or position israel and russia have played in the ioc's politics and like vice versa like kind of historically because as you both noted right it's not this didn't start in 2021. It did not start in 2023. There are these long histories here. So kind of how can we play, place this in some kind of context? Well, I spoke last, so I'm going to throw that one to Jules. <laughs> sure, absolutely. I mean, I think there's some recent historical context that's important and then some that goes a little bit further in the past. And then just, you know, focusing on Russia for the moment, since I think that's going to be in the headlines as we get closer, probably even more. But, um, mm. you know, Vladimir Putin and Russia hosted the 2014 Olympics in Sochi, and they spent lavishly on this. They spent uh, more than $50 billion. Originally, they were supposed to cost $12 billion. They ended up costing $51 billion. That's more than all previous Winter Olympics combined. Now, we might be sitting here going, oh my gosh, well, you know, that's an incredible amount of, of taxpayer money. They did get some from some oligarchs, to be sure, but the IOC's perspective was like, hey, Great job. Well done. You you spared no expense. This is what we like to see around here. And, you know, we often forget that in doing so, Vladimir Putin kind of used the opportunity to sports wash. So the IOC got what they wanted, shiny venues for the for their athletes, but Putin definitely got what he wanted. And it was at a crucial moment in 2014 where he was hosting these Olympics. And if you look at public opinion data around Vladimir Putin, in 2014, when the Sochi Olympics were happening, they just popped through the roof. I mean, the Olympics were a huge benefit for him. And I think that points to one element that's of sports washing that's really not discussed very much is that sports washing can essentially be a trampoline for war. Putin used those high ratings to literally invade uh, Crimea during the Olympic truce moment. 
and the IOC basically did nothing about it at that time. And so um, if you go back further in history, you know, in the 19, uh, Stalin actually was the one who kind of got Russia on board and well, the, the Soviet Union on board. And, uh, you know, I know, Johanna, a lot of your work is around this, so I'm sure you'd have a lot to add to this conversation. But <laughs> going back to the 1950s, the Soviet Union became this incredible force and in power within the Olympic movement. And also, even though the IOC says that it eschews politics and and so on, it certainly benefited the Olympics that you had these kind of superpowers of the Soviet Union and the United States having these proxy battles inside of the Olympic zone. And so there's been a long-term interest in buffering and buffeting the efforts of Russia inside of, of the Olympics. But I'd be actually interested to hear what you have to say about that history, because I know you've studied it and written so much about it, Johanna. <laughs> Put me on the spot. No, I mean, it's, I, I would say, I would, as a historian, I would say a lot of the focus is on the Soviet Union and not on countries like Hungary that help facilitate, which is the country that I focus on. Hungary really facilitates the Soviet Union's entry in terms of helping teach it like the Olympic rules, Olympic language, these ideas of like supposed internationalism and peace. Um, but I mean, the, the more recent research that I've done, like last summer when I was at the IOC archives, Jules, that I told you about, which just as if I needed any more reason to like to test the Olympic Games and the IOC with and like found documents in the 1920s of um, Coubertin, the 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 major uh, the president and kind of major tour de force behind uh, re uh, rejuvenating the Olympic Games, talking about the IOC needing to conquer Africa as like the last bastion of the world that Olympic sport did not currently occupy, like using this language of colonization. Now, the IOC isn't very successful in making inroads of Africa because Britain and France don't want their colonized people to participate in sport. They don't want them to beat like European athletes and potentially like disrupt the colonial order. But I think that is also a launching point for like authoritarianism to really like take advantage of what the IOC wanted to do. Because, I mean, Jules, your work, both of you talk about how the IOC is like its own I think kind of authoritarian organization, or at least that's my understanding. So please correct me if I'm wrong about your understanding of the IOC. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think, first of all, I mean, the IOC is guided by this paradox and it has all the way back to Baron Pierre de Coubertin, that plucky French aristocrat you were talking about who started the Olympics <laughs> in the 1890s. It's been guided by this paradox. It says that it's against politics but that all too often is an excuse for the IOC to act without a moral compass when dealing with autocracies mm. and apartheid states. And another reason is, like you're, you're indicating, is that the IOC, especially in recent years under its current president, Thomas Bach, has become a whole lot more autocratic. He's basically mm. concentrated power in the hands of the executive board. And back in the day, all members of the International Olympic Committee got to vote on and have a say in who would get the Olympics. Uh, under Bach today, he's really changed that where it's two tiny pockets mm -hmm. of loyal um, members of the International Olympic Committee who decide. One pocket decides on the Summer Olympics, the other decides on the Winter Olympics. This is 10 members of the mm -hmm. IOC or less. And then basically the rest of them, there's 106 members right now, uh, they basically just kind of rubber stamp whatever happens. And I think it'll be really interesting going into Paris to see if Thomas Bach, the current president, pulls an authoritarian power move because his term is supposed to expire. But there are numerous members of the International Olympic Committee who really want Bach to stay on. So if he flaunts the rules that were put in place after all the corruption of Salt Lake City to try to rein in what was happening around bribery and corruption, and he just says, nah, you know what, I'm going to make an exception for myself, that would be sort of the pinnacle of autocratic action on his part. But there's no question that today, the International Olympic Committee is an authoritarian force. And the problem is they're, you know, the, really unaccountable. I mean, like, they're, they're a huge infrastructure of sport that it's really hard to get your hands around trying to stop what they're doing because they have little accountability for what they do. I, I want to kind of go to this uh, piece about um, kind of, Jules, you mentioned earlier um, about kind of the, the Olympic Charter language about like sport being at the service, this is an article of sport being at the service of harmonious development of humankind and like peaceful society. And, but as you too laid out, right, there's no moral compass. It's, you know, authoritarian. 
And I'm kind of wondering, like, what do these words like peace and human dignity, like, what do they mean for the IOC? And like, what, obviously, this might be really obvious, but what should they mean right now in light of these wars and genocides? Hmm. That, that's, a, that's a great question. So what you're asking is, what should the IOC be saying about war and genocide? I think it's sort of like, what sure do I these, get the question right. yeah, yeah. What, what are these ideas of like peace and human dignity? Like, what do they mean for the IOC? Like, do you think they're oh, just words you. they throw out? But then also like, if we, they were to actually pursue them in an altruistic way, like, yeah, what should they mean? So I guess it's sort of a two-parter. I mean, to me, the question, it's about pressure from below. Because mm-hmm. what the IOC represents is authoritarian. What the IOC represents uh, is something like as an organization. I'm not saying the, what the Olympics represent. I'm being very mm-hmm. specific about what the IOC represents. We could have a different discussion about what the Olympics represent, which isn't all, mm-hmm. you know, isn't all laurels mm-hmm. and, and, and fun. But but what the IOC in particular represents is you know a, a structure of rule. Um, in a world of increasing inequality. And so, but the ability to force them to do the right thing is very powerful. I mean, that's what the 1968 Olympians learned uh, when the IOC actually reinstated South Africa and Rhodesia after banning them at previous Olympics. And the pushing forward by these athletes was critical in banning them for 1968. And forcing the IOC, Avery Brundage of all people, an open fascist sympathizer from having to step away from white supremacist countries. Ooh, that must have made him mad. I mean, Jules has been through Avery Brundage's uh, personal papers. <laughs> and I wonder if what made it into the archives was what I'm sure were some very ugly hand scrawled notes at, in his mind, like being forced to do the wrong thing, namely criticize his good friends in South Africa and Rhodesia. Um, so I think that's where this is. It's yet another edifice of our society that we are trying to take a sledgehammer to to reshape it into something more just. And that doesn't mean it automatically becomes good if it bans the countries we think should be banned, if it says the things we think need to be said. But what it does mean is that we've built, it takes, a, it takes the temperature of a movement. And it would mean that we're doing the right things. We're acting in a way that's empowering. And frankly, we're reclaiming a lot of this space from the right wing, uh, which feels like it can find a space in being critical of these institutions in a way that like creates a diagnosis that ordinary people relate to, but then the solutions that they offer or the cures that they offer with that diagnosis uh, could not be uglier. Mm. Yeah, it's tempting to take the Avery Brundage bait because I can talk about what uh, the, the activists in 1968 called slavery Avery Brundage all day long. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was just a full throttle mm-hmm. anti-Semite. He didn't even like medicine. He thought it helped weak people survive. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, he was, as if your listeners, uh, you know, don't know Avery Brundage, he was the president of the International Olympic Committee from 1952 to 1972. And he was the guy who was furious when John Carlos and, and Tommy Smith stood up on the medal stand for justice alongside Peter Norman, who wore that button uh, for the Olympic Project for Human Rights. But, you know, when it comes to the Olympic Charter, I've read it from cover to cover on numerous occasions, and I follow the updates very, really carefully when they amend it. And I have to say, you know, the Olympic Charter is a pretty awesome document. I mean, there are a lot of great ideas in that thing. The problem is that the International Olympic Committee ignores a lot of those great ideas. Uh, when may, may I interrupt you, Joel? Yes, may I interrupt absolutely. you? Absolutely. Because there's a question then that arises that relates directly to Johanna's question, which is, why did they write it then? Hmm. Well, I think because the Olympics are a lot about spectacle and about feel-good you know, approach to the world, and that's what you see in there. And they're also pretty careful about it. I mean, these folks are, are lawyers who write this thing. Let me give you an example about one element that I think will directly speak to what you're asking about, Dave, and that is around human rights. Like for years, Dave and I, hundreds of people around the world have been jumping up and down about how the, the Olympics basically ignores human rights whenever they feel like it. And they hand the Olympics to huge human rights abusers who promise that they're going to use the Olympics to improve their human rights situation. And in fact, they never do that. In fact, according to Sophie Richardson of Human Rights Watch, giving the 2008 
Olympics to Beijing actually catalyzed further abuses. So on one hand, you know, they've gotten a lot of flack for this over the years the International Olympic Committee has. So what they did was they decided finally, after years of study, all these blue ribbon commissions, you couldn't have dragged it out much longer. Of course, we all know why they dragged it out to get it past the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. So these things didn't apply to them. But they finally then, after those Olympics happen, decide, oh, you know what, we're going to add some provisions to the Olympic Charter around human rights. And if you read those provisions around human rights, they tightly circumscribe the application of human rights principles to inside of the Olympic zone only. It has nothing to do with what happens outside of the Olympic bubble. And so even after all these years of everybody saying, look, you need to kind of sync up your sentiments and, and your actions, this is how they do it, you know, written by lawyers. So you have, you know, selective enforcement from the International Olympic Committee when it comes to human rights. And I think that points to a wider selective morality that for too long has guided the in- actions of the International Olympic Committee. It's just so well, interesting to me when bad organizations put out great statements. Mm-hmm. Like you could, I mean, Professor Mellis, you, you could teach a whole class <laughs> when bad, you know, and just look at why these organizations, FIFA, the IOC, occasionally put out these, you know, incredibly flowery, even empowering statements about the kind of world we should be living in and how sports can get us there and then act in a manner that it, that is, frankly, uh, libelous to their own organization. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the gap between like words and words and reality, ideology and reality. And, and just to follow up, Jules, you said that just got published in 2022. Uh, the, the updates to the Olympic charter, uh, regarding human rights were the following year after the, the Beijing games. Okay. Yeah. 23. Okay. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I think maybe the question that we'll kind of end up on, kind of round this out with, is um, this interview, Dave, that you did, really tremendous. Again, we'll link it. I, I know I'm going to be putting a lot of links in the show notes because show notes, there's so much for people to keep looking into if they're interested in this topic. So you interviewed former NBA player and basketball coach Tariq Abdul-Wahad regarding the rationale or his idea of like the rationale and urgency behind his really active pro-Palestinian stance. And I was wondering if you might share um, kind of your thoughts about the interview and especially he talks about how his French background influenced his position and especially with the Olympic Games being in Paris, like we talked about it a little bit, but kind of how might we understand how his very background influenced his position on this issue? No, absolutely. Uh, you know, Tariq Abdul-Wahad, his, his birth name is Olivier Saint-Jean. Uh, Tarek is, is was one of the real pioneers of French basketball players playing in the NBA, and now, of course, in the era of Victor Wembanyama and a player named Bilal Koulibaly uh, here in Washington. I mean, France is in full flower and full bloom, and I think the 2024 games in Paris is just going to be this incredible uh, showcase for Victor Wembanyama and French basketball. But as Tarek reminded me and I'm glad he did, is that that's the legacy of colonization. I mean, because the French basketball players that we're looking at right now are people of African descent, and they come from the colonized nations of France, and they were born in France. But the legacy comes out of something much, something that I, I promise you the Olympic broadcasters are not going to want to discuss. And one of the reasons why they're not going to want to discuss it is because you know they'll have this narrative of, whether you want to call it a cultural acculturation or, 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 or melting potism, whatever you want to call it, like, well, we're all France, all French now. But when you speak to Arab and Muslim and African diasporic populations in France, I mean, the, the level of oppression is so severe mm-hmm. that you do seek out anti-colonial causes because you feel like you yourself are a colony within a nation to use the phrase of, of Du Bois. And that colony within a nation means that you're going to have sympathies with the Palestinian people, even if you're not necessarily of Arab or Muslim descent, but merely a descendant of the process of colonization. Uh, and, so, and so that's what Tarek r- reminded me of with regards to hoops. And then the other thing is Tarek, like you mentioned it, like his sense of urgency to me puts the fire under myself. 
to be like, all right, if this person is willing to go that extra mile, what am I in fact willing to do? Because as I said earlier, I do think there is a particular burden. Um, some may call it a blessing, but if you do self-identify strongly as Jewish and you disagree with what is happening, this is a moment where silence uh, is, is, is just intolerable. Like if you have the consciousness to be against this and you are Jewish, you need to say something because it's being done for you. And how obscene is that? So that's what I got out of the Tarek interview. By the time it was done, I was definitely doing some deep thinking, not just about the questions that he posed about colonization, sports, uh, and activism, but also the question of how sports can be used as a lever to open people's eyes to what's happening and to create more sympathy, particularly in the United States, for being able to speak about a ceasefire without feeling that punishment is going to come right afterwards. Because that's been my experience too with athletes. People say, oh, they don't know. It's less about not knowing and more about fearing what could happen if you do step out. But when you think about all the athletes who spoke out after the police murder of George Floyd, and you think about the title of Angela Davis's book, From Ferguson to Palestine, Freedom is a Constant Struggle, um, it, it, it does create a challenge to say we need to connect these issues of injustice internationally. And if we speak out about one, we need to speak about the other. And people like us need to try to create the conditions so people can speak out about both and feel safe. Hmm. Absolutely. And what are, sorry, Jules, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, no. I was just appreciating what he said. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that was such a powerful uh, note to end on. I really want to thank you both so much for taking time to speak with me today. And you two have given me a lot to think about. So I really appreciate you both for this conversation. Well, thank you. And I'm so glad the end of sport podcast exists. You guys do tremendous work. It's a must listen to me for me. I hope everybody supports your podcast, not just by listening to it and spreading it around, but by monetarily supporting it however they can. Yeah, 100% cosign on my end. Uh, keep up the great work, folks. It's an honor to get to have, have this chance to speak with you today. Thank you. Thank you.